Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission provides veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. So they are not just a publishing company, but they also are a publishing company, and their most recent publication is The Hill, a memoir of war in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. The book follows Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, focusing on his time as an infantry squad leader in Garmsir, Helmand Province, during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. The book has been gotten phenomenal reviews and as you've probably seen it plastered all over social media. Um, it really has been an outstanding um, book and has captured an awful lot of the combat experience, especially for the Marine Corps and especially in Helmand. You can check that book out as well as everything else that second mission foundation is doing by going to second mission foundation.org. That's second mission foundation, all one word, dot org second mission foundation dot org and i thank them for being a co-sponsor of this episode this week um we went back to the well and did our second dc marvel crossover episode with iman kafel and project sapient uh this was iman's brainchild so i'll give him credit or blame depending on how this plays out um but I was thrilled we could do it again. Uh, it's always great to partner with Iman on these things. And um, it really happened because Iman, I will bore you with all the details, but basically he uh, was trying to uh, find out more about a book that Marshall McGurk had spoken highly of. And the book was High Risk Soldier, and the author was Taryn Wharton. And... Uh, we got a hold of Taryn and Iman said, Hey, I'd love Taryn. Uh, he said to Taryn, I'd love you to be on the show. And I said, well, heck I've got slots to fill. I'd love Taryn to be on the show as well. So we decided to do the, the um, episode together. Now at that point, I should say Iman had read high risk soldier and was a big fan. I was piggybacking on Iman's enthusiasm. And then I read the book and let me caveat this by saying what I'm about to say may suffer from a little bit of recency bias, but not much. It may be the best book I've ever read uh, as a first person account of war. It may be the way that Taryn Wharton captures the personal experiences of three combat deployments um, one Iraq, two Afghanistan deployments uh, that I think all occurred within a five-year period. Uh, the way he um, describes his emotions, his feelings, the sights, the sounds, the combat experience. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever read a better account of an actual firefight than what he describes. Uh, his ear for dialogue. 
And he comes by it honestly and for very good reason, because these are all taken from emails that he was writing home at the time or from journal entries at the time. I don't know how the hell he was able to compartmentalize and write that well when he was in those situations and when he was living that day in, day out. Um, uh, you guys have heard me talk about this before, but I, mean, I really have to compartmentalize or I had to compartmentalize when I was on de- deployment. If for him, uh, he, he didn't, and it is to all of our benefit because um, he captures, I mean, there's a lot of verisimilitude in those books. You really feel like you're there. And if you haven't been to Iraq or Afghanistan, you will feel like you have been. Um, good, bad, and ugly. Um, but he covers the personal. He covers the political, uh, the geopolitical. Um, you know, uh, he talks about even the strategic and the philosophical, about the nature of insurgency, the nature of war, the nature of killing. Um, so it goes from the philosophical to the personal and of course, even to the psychological, as he talks about PTSD, uh, suicidal ideations, all the rest of it that comes with three really intense deployments. It was a pleasure to be able to sit down and talk with him and Iman about the book. And I can't wait for you guys to hear it. I'm Christopher Ballmeyer, and this is Taryn Wharton's Profile in Havoc. I'm in. Good to see you, brother. Terry. Good to see you guys. Yeah. Great to see you. Um, Welcome to the show, man. Welcome to the shows. The shows. Come on. (laughs) Come on. Where's your DC Marvel? uh, uh, DC Marvel crossover episode. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Worlds are colliding. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, Taryn, uh, this is uh, I'll I'll start with just one compliment. And then I know Iman has a, a whole bunch of things that he wants to dive into. But let, let me just say, I, um, I've read an awful lot of first-person military accounts. Um, I don't think this is recency bias, but that, was, that may have been the best I've ever read. That was, oh, thank you. I appreciate it. it. It's, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal read. And I'm saying that not just to compliment you, but so that everyone listening knows this is a book that is incredibly worth your time. I don't like reading uh, uh, war stories too much anymore. Um, so it's always a little bit of a willpower thing to force myself to read it, but Holy shit. Was that worth it? Um, that was an incredible read. So I just wanted to compliment you with that and, and set the level of expectations for people as they listen to this, that, um, regardless of how, what we talk about or how good this interview is, this book is phenomenal <laughs> and is, is worth checking out and everyone should know that going in. Um, so thank you for writing that. And I've got a lot of questions for you coming up about it, but I'll let Iman ask his piece. Yeah. So, so on the, on the same note, uh, Taryn, same thing with me. Uh, when, when I read it, um, I'm, I'm like Chris, I don't really read too many, uh, war, war books or watch these days, war movies, uh, tend to stay away from any of them. Um, but, uh, after the book was, uh, was actually, uh, by, uh, Marshall in a previous episode, uh, told us about the book and I definitely wanted to, uh, to read it and, and look at it and, and just reading it. Um, it, 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 it I mean, it was amazing. I, I just, it, you feel, you feel it too when reading it like you you can tell 
the emotion in it as, as, as a fellow combat vet and, and Chris can probably attest to it that I felt it right as I was reading it I I, I can I can almost uh sense the pain in in the certain chapters and parts of the book uh just by reading the words just by knowing being especially for someone like us being over there and then and then on the civilian side i would imagine civilians will also see that and know that emotion uh, or understand or have some not so much understand but have a certain uh appreciation for it, knowing this is what you you know theron went to this is what soldiers overseas in the recent wars uh, went through so so my hats off to and, and thank you for actually doing this for us as uh, veterans of the current wars to really uh, take a look deep into the psyche of that being of a combat soldier and and kind of the fallout I mean I, I told Chris uh, I've, I've told my story to Chris on how I got kicked out of the uh, the military uh, over uh, over injuries that I sustained in Iraq and reading this book I'm like my god I want because at the time I don't remember them using these terms that they used for you uh, it was just it was like an automatic decision yeah we're gonna med board them let's get them at like yeah. Really, you know, like to me, it was it felt yeah, a little betrayal on my part. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I just spent fucking sorry for swearing, but I just spent 18, uh, you know, 19 months, 20 months of my life, you know, doing this war, fighting this war, do, doing what I did. And now you're just like, yeah, you're damaged goods. We don't want you anymore. You know, so so that's a, that's kind of my 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 comment to kind of start it off. Mm-hmm. So so I think, yeah, Chris, you're right. Expectations are going to be high for this because, again, it's going to talk about what you know i love talking about the just the root issues within the military community within the law enforcement community ptsd mm-hmm. tbi all these things that really never it gets talked about but not really you know what i mean it's, it's one of those things that just yeah we know it's there we'll talk about it but then we'll just pull it off on the side mm-hmm. yeah. well i'll so, tell you guys the reason that i uh <clears throat> i chose to write the book for two reasons uh number one it was just part of my own uh, personal therapy and my own and my own uh, part of just coming to grips with what happened and overcoming my own PTSD. Um, the more you, you know, pull something out and you look at it and you examine it and you work with it, you know, the less traumatic it becomes. It goes from something that's a trauma to something that's a bad memory to something that's just a memory and part of yourself. Uh, second, I wrote it because I'm part of several groups that do not talk about uh, mental health and behavioral health. I'm a soldier. I'm an officer. I'm a combat arms officer. I'm black and I'm a black man. Right. So those groups very much um, really just don't talk about mental health a lot, uh, especially uh, you see it a lot in the black community growing up. Uh, family members of mine who struggle with mental health. And there was there was a big hesitancy to really name the problem and name what was going on and just kind of ignore it. So I figure by, Hey, speaking out of my personal experiences and speaking to those groups is, Hey, being able to one kind of normalize it uh, and remove the stigma and just kind of show people, Hey, you know, you're, you're not alone, right? I'm the poster child for the stereotype of people who shouldn't have these issues. Right. But Hey, I have them too. And if you have them, you know, you, you can't overcome it. You know, I liken it to having a broken leg. You know, if you break your leg, you go get surgery, you go through physical therapy. And when your legs healed and the cast comes off, you don't walk around like your legs broken anymore. It's the same way for mental health and, um, you know, moral injuries, right. Is you, 
you name the problem, you face the problem, you do the work, and then you heal and you move on. Yeah, I want to, uh, Taryn, let me just set the table a little bit um, for this. Uh, I think to me, one of the, the strengths of the book, there are three that I can see right off the bat. One is that there's no two ways about it. Um, for those that haven't been overseas or haven't been in the military, the way you describe um, a deployment, uh, the quiet parts and the loud parts, I think is, for I, I haven't analyzed the writing style enough to know why, but for some reason it resonated in a way I was like, man, anybody would feel like they've been there after reading this. Um, your ear for dialogue, I think was phenomenal when you talk about just you know, the radio calls going out. It was such a flashback. Um, and I think anyone can relate to that. So that's one thing is the verisimilitude. The second piece, I think, is how you describe just your ability to describe that and describe moments that I think any service member can relate to and family members or people just are curious that don't understand veterans would want to know, but describing um, very nuanced gray area mental states, uh, you ex really explaining, like when you first talked about going to Disney World on leave, just describing exactly what it was in ways that everybody, I know for me, and I'll, I'll assume for Iman as well, could relate to, but you you really described it well in a way I was like, I don't think I can put that down on paper. He just said it. That's it. That's it. You just, you, you nailed it. Like there's nothing else to say. And then of course, the third piece is the inherently therapeutic part, I think, and your journey and talking about, you know, that evolution and what you found and all that, how that unfolded. So I think for those three things, um, it made this book just phenomenal. I, I really did think, and I, for those that aren't aware, this was all your journals and your emails that this was called from. So yep. my first question to you is how the fuck were you able to write this articulately while you were over there? Uh, so writing's always kind of been a passion and a hobby of mine. And I will tell you that uh, what you see now is the product of a lot of thought reflection and editing. Okay. So when I went back and started pulling everything together, um, there were some parts that rang clearly and some parts were an incoherent mess. Gotcha. Right. So part of the editing process um, was um, editing for clarity, right? Mm -hmm. Cleaning up sentence structure, cleaning up grammar. Uh, I had a couple of wonderful high school friends uh, who helped me. Uh, one is actually a uh, psychiatrist who works with vets. The other mm -hmm. is a librarian, and the third is a English professor in our in our hometown. Uh, they did a lot to help me um, achieve those things that you were talking about, um, and really kind of help with a lot of just the technical aspects of the writing. But yeah, this was—I mean, if I sent you the original document with the original emails and things like that, it'll read 95% the exact same. And it was just a writing has always just been kind of a little bit of a therapy for me. Uh, I've always enjoyed it. I've always done it. And journaling, it's, it's weird because my time in Iraq was probably the most consistently that I had journaled and written um, in my life. 
And you didn't find that being that introspective while you're still there was a detriment. You found that to be a benefit to you. You know what? I don't, I don't know if I could say that it was a, a benefit or a detriment. It was just a, a release valve for me. Hmm. Um, writing down my own thoughts in the journal entries, uh, writing the emails to family and friends. Um, it was a release for me. And it was a way to to stay in contact. I know it, it seems a little weird now, but you know, you guys remember early on in the war, there was a line for the NWR. There was the line for the call center. <laughs> yep, yep. I had like the entire 28-digit <laughs> string memorized for my MCI calling card. Yeah, right? I remember those. <laughs> From like the access code, yeah. the DSN numbers, so you could get like, you know, the discount minutes, you know, all the way to my girlfriend at the time's yeah. phone number. Um, you know, it was either that or you had the really shitty Arachna cell phones. I, where, had, I had one of those. <laughs> yeah, you, you stand on one leg with your with your left arm sticking out, yep. hold your rifle in the other and, and pin the phone to your elbow. You might get a bar. Oh, that just brought um, back memories yeah. on that. Yeah. You know, so it was it was a way to stay in touch and communicate with people because it wasn't as easy back then. Yeah. Um, and the occasional email to a lot of friends and family answered a lot of questions. Um, it assured people that I was physically OK, um, because a lot of my closer friends and family near the end realized that I was not mentally um, OK. But that's really what it really was. It's, you know, part hobby, part self-reflection and just part pressure release valve is, is why I did it. I'm just amazed you had the composure to do that while you were there. Sorry, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was just going to say just interesting uh, point about you saying uh, culturally as as a black man and and how in in that culture it's it's you know mental health is sort of put aside and not never really talked about because it just isn't. It's the same way in in, in my culture. It, it, it's not taught. It's not allowed to be talked about. You know, because one, I come from the Middle East. I was born in Africa. My great grandparents uh, and actually members of my family are African. And so we have this whole mix of cultures all together and none of them talk about mental health because it's not allowed almost, you know, it's like, right. you know, like my son, he, he's a, he has autistic, he's autism, but that side of my family, my family. Oh, hell no. That's not our, he's not, he's just being a kid. He's not this, he's not, I'm like, eh, you guys just don't, you know, you don't get it. Like you don't see it. Same yeah. with, uh, you know, when I came home uh, with PTSD and everything, I remember one day my dad had to sit with me and he was like, why are you so angry? I'm like, I just got home. Like, you know, like <laughs> y'all are driving me out of my mind. You know, like, like I remember sitting there, had to, he was trying to, he finally asked me like, you know, that just, it's so funny. Cause again, there was holes all over my walls and I was just, you know, one angry dude after combat. And, and at the time, you know, I came home, we lost a couple soldiers uh, just before we came home and, and all that was going on in my head. And, and then, you know, like with our families, well, life went on and we got the day-to-day -day stuff we got to do yet, you know, um, in, our, in our cultures, it doesn't matter. Hey, you're back. All right, cool. So we got to start mowing the lawn and we got to go start working and you got to do this and you got to do that. And it's like, because like I'm the oldest in my family. So a lot of responsibility falls on me. So mm -hmm. that is going back into the routine of taking my brothers and sisters to soccer practice or to whatever and dropping them off at school and doing this and doing that. And it's like, you know, never getting that moment to actually ask, Hey, you're all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. And, and honestly, it's a lot of those little routine things that I think people don't, um, people don't understand and the movie american sniper when that came out i think 
God, how long ago was that? Are we really no, that old? That was a while. Yeah, yeah. we're we're that but, old. That came out a while ago. <laughs> but it was like it was two different groups of people saw that movie two different ways. A lot of civilians saw it as a war story. A lot of vets who saw it as the important parts weren't what was happening when he was downrange. It was the stuff yeah. that was happening when he got home, like when he was trying to grocery shop and like couldn't decide between like brands of cereal. I remember having that experience after my first appointment. I went to the Walmart that was by my apartment. And while I was gone, they reorganized it. So I couldn't find anything. It took me two hours to get through half my list. And by that point, I was so on edge because of all the people. I was so frustrated because I couldn't just find like fucking Captain Crunch. That like I left yeah. the car in the middle of the Walmart and just left. Yeah. And just yeah. left. And it's all those little tiny mundane things that you have to kind of retrain yourself to do because in some ways, combat's easier. You wake up, you prep your gear, you patrol, you try not to die, you come yeah. back, you file your debrief, you smoke a whole bunch of cigarettes, drink a whole bunch of chai, play some Xbox, rinse and repeat for <laughs> 364 days, right? Yeah. I don't have to worry about what I'm going to wear from my car insurance or my phone bill or picking up groceries or returning a call to the doctor's office or the thousands of other little minute decisions that aren't so bad when you're, when you're, when you're even keel, but yeah. when you add all those little tiny things against the sheer energy expenditure of just trying to keep yourself together when you first get home, uh, it becomes too much. And then it manifests in the anger and the depression and the drinking and the drugs and all the other little things that become cries for help. But depending on your chain of command, as you know, hey, this guy isn't this guy, this isn't a cry for help. He's just another, he's just another problem child. He, yeah. Hey, just give him minimal stuff. Let's chapter him out uh, as soon as we, as soon as we can. Uh, and again, that was, I think something that a lot of folks don't realize is the people, our brothers and sisters who have succumbed to their PTSD and succumbed to the, to the depression who have taken their own lives. A lot of times it's not something big. That's the final yeah. straw. Right. Yeah. It's something little, right? Yeah. It's it's that one more thing that's just too much. And they don't know or have a method or an outlook to talk to somebody before they get to that point. That's that's hundred percent. I mean, I see it on the law enforcement side with my fellow officers who have seen so much trauma. Uh, and like you said, though, to translate that to doing the mundane things they got to do when they're off duty, pick up groceries, grab this, grab that. And then the pressures of having a family and then coming back to work and then rinse and repeat, literally dealing with societal problems and and just over and over and over and it compounds where you're not getting enough vacation time or you're not getting enough downtime between your shifts because uh, the body takes approximately 48 hours to process whatever trauma you saw. But in 48 hours, we're right back to work. So we haven't had that time to decompress, to deload, to do whatever we need to do to get back up to back, get back into uh, uh, what's called uh, like a fighting force or, or a, you know, men mentally healthy and ready uh, uh, to, to get back into work. So it compounds over and over and over until, like you said, that final valve or that final little thing, it, it could be the most mundane thing. Oh, I missed a call. Crap. Boom. You know, like, like mm -hmm. something, something that reminds me of, uh, you know, I had, I had 
two quick stories about that. I had a uh, one person where a veteran, Marine Corps veteran, he was in Afghanistan. I was uh, transporting him from uh, from uh, I forget which location to a mental hospital. But during the ride, he was t- me and him were talking, and I was like, "Hey, listen." You know, I'm a combat vet myself, so ignore the badge, ignore all this stuff. So let's just talk man to man. And, you know, we talked the whole ride and, you know, shared our stories and everything. And it was extremely therapeutic for the both of us. You know, by the time I got him to the mental hospital, he thanked me so much. And he hoped he's like, dude, you know, it, it was it was a great conversation. I really needed it to talk about. And the second story was an actual video I saw of a uh, veteran in crisis outside the VA. And this cop who is himself a golf war veteran pleaded with the kid not to kill himself, you know, and eventually the kid put the gun down and, and all, all is good. But it, it takes us as veterans because we know what we went through. It takes us to talk to other veterans, you know, not m- most times. I mean, there's been plenty of times I've gotten phone calls from fellow veterans who are cops who are hurting or, or I did the vice versa. And, and, it needs the conversation needs to happen from the chain of command, from whether it's military, law enforcement, firefighting, whatever. The conversation needs to to happen in in all those. That way, we we don't get the unfortunate uh, you know suicides and within all the communities. Uh, that's the only way this would work. So it's it's yeah, one hundred percent agree with with all that you said, Taryn, uh, in your earlier statement. Yeah, and Taryn, can I just ask to you what's the difference what's the tension between repression and discipline how do you split that difference where does where's the value of each end and the detriment begin i think it comes with having a uh an honest conversation with yourself and and really really knowing yourself because here's the thing we like to lie to ourselves all the times um but it's kind of a weird dichotomy because we lie to ourselves to make ourselves feel better, but we also deep down inside know that we're lying to ourselves, right? Uh, if that makes sense. So getting to the point um, where I call it radical honesty, and that's one thing that really kind of helped me was there's a whole bunch of things that we just don't want to say out loud ever um, about how we feel, about what we're thinking, Um you know, as husbands and fathers and things like that, I remember at one point, you know, um, at one of my therapy sessions, I had been talking to my therapist and I was like, man, I kind of feel like I kind of resent my kids a little bit. And it was like one of those things like, God, that's such a horrible thing to say. But you know what? By just saying that and voicing something that had been kind of swirling around, it allowed me to take it out, unpack it, and then fix it and get past it. So I think... One is we have to be honest with ourselves. And then two, the discipline part comes in is where you do the work. I know a lot of guys who said, yeah, man, I'm going to go to therapy. They go to therapy once. They're like, all right, I'm, right. I'm good. That box. No, right. no, no, you're not, man. Um, I was in therapy last year um, after I came out of my, my previous job. It was very, very high stress. Um, and I was just, I was not okay. Um, I wasn't okay mentally, physically, spiritually. So I said, Hey, I need to go back to therapy. Uh, and therapy really isn't a big deal. I mean, you change the car, you change the oil in your car, mm-hmm. right? You go get a physical once a year, right? It, it's, it's no different. Yeah. It's no different than a checkup for your mind. And I went and I went. And I went and when you put in the work, you will know 
when you're actually good, if you're truly honest with yourself. So Mm. yeah, it's that radical honesty of really being honest with how you feel and what you're thinking and what you need to do. And then it's the discipline to actually take the steps and maintain the consistency to truly address your problem and not just checking that box. So let me throw this out to you because it's a question that I always have struggled with is where does repression end and discipline begin or vice versa? And um, right off the bat in your book, you can see a very relatable tension develop with that because obviously discipline is required for a military lifestyle and certainly on deployment. But with that, yes, you, because you have to discipline yourselves to the hardships, there is going to be deprivation. You have to be able to inoculate yourself to the stress, to the hate, to the um, fear and all the rest of it. Yet at what point does that pervert into repression in your experience? At what point does that go? Hey, look, you know, yeah, discipline is good. And I th- and I'm saying this for a little bit of an ulterior motive because I'm giving you a little bit of a devil's advocate argument um, with the stigma of mental health, uh, you know, and with the the stigma of even seeking treatment. I understand why it gets stigmatized because we are trying to, in the military culture or law enforcement culture, we're trying to prioritize uh, discipline. And that, yeah, you don't need everything to be perfect in order to execute. Yet, it's a very nuanced place that we have to be in to go, but at the same time, start to recognize when you're repressing things in a way that's going to be harmful to you down the road and understand that maybe the time right now isn't to unpack stuff, but but understand when you do have a safe place to do it, you need to do it. And that is part of your treatment regimen. But how does that play out for you? What do you, how do you split that difference? Where do you see that line? Uh, you know, um, if I, if I 100% understood that I would probably have a second <laughs> book out there. Uh, <laughs> um, but I remember, I remember when I was, a uh, uh, you know, young cadet at West point, one of the very first things that gets hammered into you is an officer doesn't fail a mission period full stop. Like there, there's no, there's no, but, or if, or maybe is, you know, you're a United States army officer and we pay you to accomplish the mission period. Um, even when you look at, um, you know, the warrior ethos and, in, in, in the soldier's creed, what is the very first part? I will always place the mission first. Then it's, I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a, com- a fallen comrade, but is I will, I will always get the job done. And so there's a time when you have to swallow your fears, swallow your pain, swallow your doubts, and you do have to drive through and endure for the sake of getting the mission done at that time. But let's be clear, if you really want to keep yourself from accepting defeat or letting your fellow soldiers down or filling an even larger mission, self-care is part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Amen. If you had one of your guys go out to the range and he brought out a crate of ammunition and just sat there and fired the whole time until his gun broke. And he's like, but Hey boss, Hey, finally qualified. Perfect. You know, I, I nailed that target for you. Would you pat him on the back or would you choke the hell out of him? Right. It's like, Hey man, you, yeah. <laughs> did you, did you stop to, to clean your weapon? Did you change barrels? Did you do maintenance on your magazines? Like what, what are, are you crazy? 
Yeah. So when you think about it, it we do the same thing with our equipment. Hey, you still That's take your answer. squad car in for, yeah. for services, mm-hmm. put gas in it, you change the tires, right? Check the brakes. So why don't we do the same with people? Well, that's a thing. Right. Well, why, like in our uh, typical army saying, military saying is, uh, you take care of your equipment, your equipment takes care of you, right? Yep. Your mind is a very important part uh, equipment of the soldier, of the cop, of the firefighter, of the doctor. That, that's that's probably the, the most critical part of it. Uh, yep. and, uh, of it. And the cavalry has a saying, it's called uh, uh, either horse saddle man or mount saddle man. But the problem in, is in our communities, we forget the last one, the man. Yeah. We do the horse. We do the saddle. Yeah. Right. And that's it. Yeah. And and that's it. Yeah. Right. Because, because, and I think part of it is, is when you look at, you know, our culture today, you hear words like, um, you know, self care and me days and things like that. And in our culture, we kind of, Oh, we cringe. Shiver. We cringe <laughs> at that. Yeah. Yeah. What is, yeah. what is, you know, excuse me, language, what is this soft bullshit? Yeah. You know, but again, we need to stop looking at it as soft bullshit and look at it as the same way that we would clean our weapon, do a functions check on our equipment, check our cuffs, inventory, our go bag, change the oil on our car. Yeah. Right. So going to therapy, being honest with yourself, taking time after mission to just stop, breathe and unpack those feelings. And then as leaders, providing the time and space for folks to do that. And I don't want to confuse that with the, with the other cringy term safe space. Right. But guys need to know, Hey man, like you just went through some heavy shit. You know, if you need to go talk to somebody, that's fine. If you need to go take some time to clear your head, that's fine. If you're at the bar and you realize you've had way too many to drink and you need somebody to come there and sit with you and just kind of let it out and we'll just act like it never happened the next morning, that's fine too. Whatever you need to do that PMCS on yourself and do that functions check on yourself and kind of release a little bit of that pressure and tension in yourself on a short-term basis until we can get to that next major maintenance period where you're going to see a counselor, you're going to therapy if you still need to, then that's what we need to do. And we need to let guys know that it is okay and that we're not judging you. Because how many times have we sat in formations and hear, heard leaders say, hey, if you need help, say something. If you need help, raise your hand. It's, it's okay to go see behavioral health. And the first guy that does it, it's like, mm. yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's told, right. Told, yeah. you, no, told, you, a, told yeah. you he was a soft one. I, yeah. I knew it. I knew it. Hey, hey, Sergeant Major, put him on the tracker. Right. Okay. Yep. But also, but also there's that other piece of it, which is it's prescribed and it's prescribed by somebody right. who you might be like, I don't want to let you into my brain. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference between me going out and finding my mental health. If I'm smart enough to do that mm-hmm. and being told by a sergeant major, Hey, you need to go see this fucking guy over here, sit down with him. And, and I'm like, dude, I don't know who this fucking yep. some bureaucrat sitting in the VA is. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. want to talk to that dude. And that's another big piece. Cause unlike your weapon, or PT or anything else, any other maintenance check we do where you can kind of do a one size fits all go, Hey, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, everything should come together. Brain's an individual thing. And I think, I think it, that's what makes it so difficult because you need that internal dedication to it. And sometimes that's hard to do. If you're like, I'm, I'm surrounded by people I don't necessarily relate to or want to be open up to. And I think that's, I think that's, 
And I think that's why it's important for leaders to create the space, right? The army says, I will go get a physical every year. So I go get a physical every year. If I don't get a physical, I end up running the tracker and someone will come and find me. And eventually, if I keep deciding not to do it, I'm going to get punished and they're going to drag me to get my physical anyway. So if we know that behavioral health is important, if we know that mental health is important, and if we know that this is something that guys might not do on their own, like a physical, then we create the opportunity. Hey, as part of your annual physical, you will go and sit and talk with a counselor. Period. And even if you just go in there and you sit sullenly for 30 minutes, okay. Or even if you go in there and just, you know, talk about the bucks, it's okay. (laughs) But you know what? There's going to be folks who recognize that opportunity and they're going to open up and talk. And guess what? Because everybody's doing it and because it's tracked and because it's a standard, now you have leader presence with it, right? You have something enforceable. I mean, There's nothing to say that we can't use our providers and chaplains for more than just their basic functions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, Hey man, you're going to go sit down and talk with the chap. Hey, it's it's your birth month. Go update your emergency contact, go update your life insurance. And Hey, you're due for, you're due for your, your annual with the chaplain gone. Yeah. Right. And then that creates the space. And if the chap identifies something, hey, now we can bring the kid more resources, right? But I think that's where where we fail as leaders in the community in creating the environment and creating the opportunities for folks to open up in a way that doesn't feel like they're being singled out and in a way that's normalized. So so real quick, uh, before, Chris, uh, before... Uh, I forget. So, so in, in going along uh, this conversation that we're having just right now, um, and I want to just go into this whole high-risk soldier, the way the military, the army started uh, categorizing their soldiers on low-risk, high-risk, and just uh, reading uh, from your book, and this is in your book, uh, Army Soldiers Leader uh, Risk Reduction Tool, the SLRRT, and is used by Army leaders, supervisors to assess soldiers' risk level. So checklist of questions, has a soldier engaged in risky behavior? Is a soldier having relationship problems? Is a soldier having trouble sleeping? Is a soldier having difficulty coping with loss? Has a soldier expressed excessive anger or aggression? Has a soldier uh, expressed uh, suicidal thoughts? So then after you do that assessment, they go to low, you know, whether, depending on how they answer, low risk or high risk, a low risk soldier has no significant problems or has problems for which he or she is uh, receiving appropriate support. The potential adverse outcomes uh, appears to be low. And then high risk behaviors or concerns that potentially place the soldier or others in danger of, of or harm's way. Um, example of life threatening uh, risk taking behaviors, serious performance problems that jeopardize team safety, uh, threat, and self and others. Then senior leadership in the uh, battalion commander equivalent or higher and appropriate channels should be notified immediately now with this uh assessment right and and knowing that soldiers have come back through war i mean my personal experience when we were uh, demobin um you know you got a bunch of 
people from the VA or whoever is there and they tell us, hey, if you're having issues, you can come see us, let us know, raise your hand, whatever. Um, but if, you know, and, and those who raise their hands and, you know, tell us that they have issues, you'll stay on base for another, <laughs> you're like, yep, wait you're a like, minute. Oh, wait a minute. If I say, <laughs> if I lie, I can go home. Yeah. If right. I say yes, you're going to keep yep. me here longer. Yeah. yeah. And and the unfortunate part is one of one uh, well not unfortunate uh, unfortunate or fortunate however you want to say it one of one of our soldiers actually you know was like hey I, I have issues I got problems they, not only did they keep him six months uh, actually uh, up to uh, actually it was almost a year a year on base after we all got to go home and they put him with rear detachment oh. and he was treated like shit at rear detachment you have a combat soldier who's not faking an injury who's not doing this doing that yeah. And he got treated like trash. He was telling me they were having him do push lawn mowing. And like, it was horrible for a horrible, horrible. So how can you, so again, you know, you do these assessments though, the army, big army does these assessments, but then fail their soldiers when it comes time for the actual help. So I'll tell you is the, the slurt was a good intentioned tool to a problem the army didn't know how to solve, right? It was, hey, we have soldiers who are coming home and we're seeing increases in domestic violence and violent behavior and criminal behavior and, and depression and suicide. We we have to do something. Okay, well, what can we do? Well, we'll ask a soldier a bunch of questions and then depending on his answer, we'll get him help, right? It sounds great. The problem is the tool is only as good as the leader. Yeah. And that's where it came is even though we had a tool that was a good tool, a well-intentioned tool. You still didn't have the leaders who actually gave a shit. And when I say give a shit is not just let me get the numbers on my higher risk tracker down, but I, I don't care about Specialist Smith. No, I, I care about Bill Smith, right? Bill Smith from Paducah, Kentucky, who's got you know a wife and two kids. And while I have met a lot of leaders in the military who were like that, who valued me as a human being... I've had just as many that I am a number on a tracker. Yep. I am a chiclet to be turned green <laughs> and I am an SIR waiting to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So again, is how are you using the tool? I had leaders who used the tool and were like, you're going to go get the help and I'm going to make you get help and I'm going to create the space and the resources for you. Or, Hey man, I just wanted to talk and check on you and how you're feeling. Um, and then you had the folks who treated you as as kind of, you know, a, a giant red flashing warning, right? Um, the other thing, too, is the tool requires leaders to know their soldiers. And perfect example, uh, when I was a troop commander, we came home from Afghanistan, and I had a young kid. I think he was maybe 20, 21, um, but first enlistment, uh, he great soldier so he comes home and he gets we're doing our we're doing our post deployment health assessment and he gets the he gets the high risk so he gets the slurred inventory and so he's going through and see if you've been here for a while you know the answer is look i sleep six eight hours tonight i never have more than one to two <laughs> yeah. drinks yeah no more than three times a week yeah i love my wife i love my kids i love my dogs i don't have nightmares and i don't have any bad thoughts well this kid <laughs> answered the questions honestly you know, he gets it. How many drinks do you have a night? Oh, well, you know, sometimes after work, because all junior soldiers sound like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Junior soldiers and lieutenants. Oh, well, you know, sometimes, sometimes two or three. Check. <laughs> do you, do you, 
do any risky behaviors. Oh, well, I like to skydive. I'm, I'm probably going to go skydiving over lead because the kid did skydive. The kid owned a motorcycle. Are you sleeping? Oh, well, you know, um, body's still on Afghan time. So, yeah, a little <laughs> bit of trouble sleeping. Here's another one. Yeah. Right. And the kid was, you know, just like a lot of other army kids, he came from a troubled background, didn't really have contact with his family. So now he doesn't have close family ties. And he goes through all this. And I get a call saying, Captain Wharton, what the hell are you doing with this kid? What do you mean? Specialist Jones. How do you not have him with the chaplain, with the provider? And I'm like, what what the hell are you talking about? The kid maxed out the slurred inventory. So I got his question. I looked at it and I was, and I immediately knew what happened. So I pulled the kid, me and first sergeant pulled the kid in and we talked to him and he was like, sir, I'm, I'm just being honest. And now I'm getting all these calls. So I have to go to like inpatient treatment and ASAP and all these other things. And people are looking, I'm like, call, but again, a bureaucratic tool yep. kicked out a bunch yep. of actions, but no one talked to the leader who knew the soldier to be like, the kid's 21 and he was just being honest he's a good kid he has a lot to look forward to we know this kid he is not a risk and not a threat i mean even his his platoon sergeant his squad leader were like get out of here right but again had we not been in place what would have happened the bureaucracy the system would have snatched him up ran him through all those things and like you said amen like a good and a well a well-intentioned process would have actually made this kid worse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Wow. And you know, the slurt, the slurt is still used in some form or fashion today. I've sat through slurt briefs. I've, I've seen the inventory sheets. The army, I will say is doing a better job now than yeah. they did. Um, there is a greater respect for privacy. Uh, there is a greater respect for discretion. No longer is it every company commander and first sergeant and half the staff sitting through reviewing like all the intimate details of a dude's life, right? And there are more programs now to ensure that a soldier has access for resources and their follow-ups. But guys still fall through the cracks. And what is the one common denominator between guys who fell through the cracks now and guys who fell through the cracks then it's leaders who aren't engaged and leaders who don't care. And the same thing is true with the soldiers that you see who get help and are the success stories, leaders who are involved, leaders who care and leaders who are engaged and who create those spaces where guys can go and get help where guys and gals can go and get help and get the care they need while still feeling like they are a valued member of the team. Yeah, see, that's, that that's, are, that's extremely important. That's that's yeah. that's huge right there. Yeah. I mean, I just remember thinking back now, you know, I just again a flashback to, to Iraq. Um, I had a specialist, uh, I was I was a uh, sergeant at the time, and I had a specialist. Uh, I remember I used to go around to all the tents, check in on all the guys. Like, I got, I didn't, you know, hey, what's up, guys? How you doing? It doesn't have to necessarily by squad or anybody. I'm just, you know, go out there and check on everybody. And uh, I remember talking to this uh, kid, and, and he felt suicidal. He told me right out after we were talking for a while because i could tell his head was down you know feeling however mm-hmm. he was feeling and talked to him for over an hour until it finally came out now here's the thing this guy this kid he has access to guns ammo grenades like everything you know he, mm-hmm. he, the access is there because we're in combat and i immediately went to my uh to the commander and the first sergeant and uh they looked at me dumbfounded like as mm-hmm. if oh well okay now what like, what the fuck? Like, do something. Like, let's let's 
freaking figure out something to do with him because clearly he, he, he he's in trouble. You know, he, he just openly admitted it to me. And I don't know how long we have before he decides, you know what, I just spoke my mind and now I'm going to shoot myself or do whatever. I, it was like, I, you know, I, I made sure it got rushed. Like, hey, get to him, talk to him. And unfortunately, he's the same one that bureaucratically got destroyed because of the way the army handled it. You know, and it was it was like to me, it really showed me in the middle of, in the middle of theater and combat. Like, I get it. We all need to be a ready fighting force and we've got to be ready for the mission. But if the man, if the squad is broken, the mission's going to be broken. The mission's not going to be a success or the mission's not going to follow through because you have one soldier who's having legitimate issues and you need that soldier needs that help. And. Mm-hmm. And and getting that help that should be the priority of the command. And yep. I think our the bad leadership, our command uh, did not really know the soldiers. You know, they were just yep. too bureaucratic and not really got to know Billy or Jimmy or mm-hmm. you know, hey, what you know, full names. And 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 it was it was it's it's amazing to me because. I remember there was like an, yeah, a mass sergeant. We were out in the in the in the in the mess hall, in the chow hall, actually on base and on a big base. And uh, I remember one of the guys just you know it was just fun banter and called him by his first name or whatever. And and this eat mass sergeant, oh, we're on first name basis now. What are you boys? And and we look, I look at him. I'm like, actually, we are. Like yeah, that's the thing. Like when you when you kick indoors together all the time. You, you develop this bond, you know, not, mm-hmm. not just NCO to special surprise, but you, you develop a certain bond, you know, where every once in a while, yeah, I'll throw my buddies first. Say, hey, Dave, what's up, dude? Like, you know, it's okay, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but, but to big army, holy shit, that's mm-hmm. no, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to mm-hmm. exhibit any human emotion towards your fellow soldier, <laughs> you know? So, so that kind of shows, again, like, like we were talking with high risk soldier, the intention was great, but the leadership some of the leadership did not follow through and uh, unfortunately destroyed yeah. a, a lot of soldiers. Yeah. You know, it, it, it takes me back to the, to, a. there's a line in the NCO creed that's always kind of resonated me, you know, and it's, 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 you make sure I, I, I get this right is, you know, my two basic responsibilities will always be uppermost in my mind, accomplishment of my mission and the welfare of my soldiers. Exactly. Right. And it took me a long time um, as an officer to kind of realize what it meant by taking care of soldiers. You know, when I was a young lieutenant, I thought that meant, oh, well, make, make sure soldiers have time off, right? Yeah, that's not really it. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until I was kind of a senior captain near the end of my company command time, I had two absolutely fantastic non-commissioned officers who really did a lot for my, uh, my development. One was my first sergeant, who's now retired. Um funny story this first sergeant on christmas day at our cop played whams last christmas on repeat over the top <laughs> for four hours and now every year at christmas the first time one of us hears it we hop on the group chat <laughs> and, and, and post a reminder to the top um the other one was a platoon sergeant and i'll just refer to him as uh as v v was the absolute embodiment of the NCO creed V knew his soldiers in and out and V ensured that his soldiers were properly trained, equipped that their families were ready and all the potential distractions were taken care of. So that when it came time to put soldiers in harm's way, 
he could say that he did the absolute everything that he could, everything that he could to ensure these soldiers are ready. Even when I would watch the disciplined soldiers, even when I would see him standing in front of me, you know, in Article 15 proceedings to recommend a punishment, this man always kept in mind that this soldier is still a person and they are more than their mistakes. And it is my job as an NCO to make sure that they are trained and ready to do the mission that, you know, the company commander, the platoon leaders are going to are going to put him in. I watched this guy go to soldiers in bars. I watched this guy go to the barracks to sit up with dudes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there were very few times when V did not give the absolute last of himself to ensure that a soldier was taken care of. And not just the soldiers that he currently had, ones that he had worked with before, or even the random Joe he saw screwing up on the side of the road, right? I mean, he is unfortunately the the last of a dying breed that we're seeing. But man, whenever I think of taking care of soldiers, that's that's who comes to mind. I mean, there is there is yeah. nothing there is nothing that his that were going on in his soldiers' lives that he didn't know about. And yeah. if he needed their help, they didn't have to ask. Yeah. You know, he was he was just there. That's not, and and just real quick um, uh, side note before Chris, I know you're yeah. aching oh, it, uh, okay. but it reminds me of of a of a uh, young second lieutenant when we were mobbing to Iraq. We were in Kuwait getting ready to go over, and uh, and I remember we were doing uh, you know mock engagements, mock missions type thing, just training up, and um, and we had a you know a late night, early morning, you know old dark thirty type hit of a compound, quote unquote, you know all that good stuff, and and he was so hung up on when to have the soldiers eat. Like he was hung up. Like I, I get his intention on making sure the soldiers <laughs> eat before they go. So I, I told him like, hey, LT, let the NCOs worry about yeah. that. Just put the mission out. We'll take care of everything else. Don't worry about that. Like you- They will get fed, NCOs. sir. Yeah, they're they'll, gonna they'll get, they'll fed. get fed. They'll yeah, get fed. Like he was so hung up. Like that was part of the op board that he could not get by. I'm like, well, LT, that's right. You put out the op board. And we'll take care of everything else. Don't worry about the minute details. Just make sure we get the uh, we have the assets in place that we need to get this mission done. And the NCOs will take care of everything else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that was the the, the very the the times where me as a as a or, or most uh, I think uh, most NCOs would step in and say, "Hey, <laughs> LT or Captain, let me worry about that. You just you know give a, mm-hmm. it, just do what you got to do on your end. We'll we'll take care of things on our end. And and sure enough, you know mission was smooth and it was all good to go. Because yeah, I, I I get it. Yeah, I mean, welfare of the soldiers. You got to make sure they eat. You got to make sure they're hydrated before you go to a mission. Like I, I get I get all that, but let us worry about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Taryn, what I loved about what you said about V is that um, it it seems that that there's a certain nuance that's that I think is missing when a lot of people talk about the welfare of the soldiers nowadays, when it seems like the pendulum swinging back the other way where, um, you know, we're worried about maybe, or, you know, the softness, is it, are we creating too gentle a force and all that? And it's, well, you're, the welfare is about getting people ready for the mission. It's not becoming their rabbi necessarily. Now, some of that is going to be implicit. You have to sit down, you have to get to know them. And, and of course, you're going to become friends with people. Of course, there's going to be a bonding. But um, I, I feel like that's also sometimes something that gets lost is that 
we're not asking NCOs to be amateur psychiatrists, but you are there to go, hey, what do we, just like you said, I love how technically you put it, that it's just like any kind of PMCS that you would do. What do we take? What does it take to get you back on the road and get you yeah. back in the fight? Mm -hmm. And I and I feel like sometimes that does get lost. What I love also, though, about listening to you, I just got to say this, is your officer mindset that goes right to, well, how can I innovate out of this problem? What's the institutional systemic fix to make sure this doesn't happen again? And it's so much more than just talking to somebody that is a good writer and articulates certain ideas. So I want to ask you about one thing that it's it, that led me to a prescription issue that I want to ask you about. When you talked about the rest cycle and you talked about it in your patrols, you talked about it during deployment. We've talked about it even on this episode. What do you think is if you're if you're king for a day? What is your fix to deployments? Are you somebody that thinks, "Yep, we should do a three months on, one month off indefinitely until the war's over"? Is it nope? The system we got works twelve to eighteen months. If your army really hold and develop, what do you think is the fix to actually get rest on a combat deployment? Uh so a couple things is you know if I was king for a day in deployment links. Um, I found that, you know, it seemed like six months was too short. 15 to 18 months was way too long. Yeah. Nine months was about right. Cause I mean, the first three months you're there, you're really just kind of trying to figure stuff out. And honestly, if you're doing a year deployment, the last three months, you really just don't give a shit. Right. <laughs> but yeah. you, you kind of peak at effectiveness probably around the four to five month mark and you can kind of really sustain that for another three to four let's be honest the last 30 days of deployment all anybody cares about is getting home with the pack yeah. out right so that's yep. that's a wash <laughs> yeah regardless yep. right <laughs> um but that that nine month length is is about a is about the sweet spot um as far as everything else i mean yeah you try to build in work rest cycles you try to build in rest time but hey the enemy has a vote yep right Yep. Um, so I will, I will make a distinction between kind of the combat deployments and the operational rotations. Uh, my last deployment was an operational rotation to Korea and we trained, we worked hard, but this is an operational rotation. We are basically just forward position, right? Yeah. We might've worked a little longer hours, but Hey, we still had weekends, right? Unless there was an actual mission or an exercise that went on my unit did a, a, you know, big press to make sure that we still had social events for the unit, hail and farewells that, you know, guys got time off. Um, I think the other part of it is if you are downrange and you are, you know, really on a, on a combat deployment is again, just paying attention to your people and knowing your people and knowing when you have to pull a guy off the line, right? My platoon sergeant, when I deployed the first time was pretty good about that. Like, cause I had the patrol schedule. He manned the roster, right? Funny thing about being a 16-man tank platoon, one guy is, one or two guys are usually always on leave. And, you know, so you're usually rolling out with like 12 dudes on a good day, <laughs> right? Yeah. But my NCOs would, could look at a guy and say, okay, hey, he, nah, he needs to stay back today, right? Yeah. He needs to get a little bit of extra rack, a little bit of time to laundry, just a little bit of time just to just be right and again you do all that in the confines of the operational environment and the mission requirements that you have and what does that boil down to knowing your soldiers knowing when somebody's at, at their limit 
and knowing when to try to create space, uh, try to create space for them. Um, but my solution, if I could wave a wand, nine month deployments, and once a quarter, you're going to go talk to somebody, whether it's a chap, whether it's the provider, whether it's yeah. a mental health professional, if we can. But when you're actually in the shit, you're going, we're going to create space for you to go talk to somebody about what, um, about what you're, what you're seeing, right? Because if the things that we did downrange, you know, the actual killing people and breaking things and the management of violence, if all of that was so natural, then infantry OSET wouldn't last almost a year, right? Yeah, you could good. literally just take somebody off the street, put them in uniform, put a weapon in their hand and, and send them out. Yeah. It, it's despite what all of the TV shows and the war stories oh, and everything else yeah. says, doing physical violence to another human being is not natural and it is not comfortable unless there is something fundamentally wrong with you. And I've, I've, we've all met dudes like that. (laughs) Everybody recognizes that that dude is not okay. Yeah. Right. But how many times, man, how many times have you known 19 year old kid goes out, gets into his first tick, kills somebody. What's the next thing that happens? Kid pukes all over himself. Yeah. Right. You know, People can't sleep, you know, it's, and it's, it's, it's weird. And we've kind of forget that because you can quickly go numb to it. Right. But we forget that the things we do aren't necessarily fundamentally natural. Right. And that's the reason why we train, we practice, we rehearse. Um, But again, we have to understand that, that there's an impact on that, you know, and and that's the Dave Grossman thing, right? Um, that, yep. that's that Dave Grossman thing about oh. on killing like, Hey, in, interspecies, it doesn't matter whether it's people or whales, there is that natural resistance to killing your own kind. Um, unless you are a sociopath, um, yeah. but we don't, we, we don't, we don't stress that much about killing other species, but we do stress about killing one of our own. And that's what, and you're right. That's what it takes is that, is that, uh, repeated effort to try to get over the hump so that you can pull the trigger um, when you need to and actually hit what you're supposed to and not just I think you phrase it uh, become a conscientious objector at the pull of the trigger where you're yeah. just trying to make noise because you don't want to let your buddies down but you're not really caring about what you're aiming well, at yeah I mean, I mean, Kristen mentions a- that in his book right when he talks about you know the the engagement rates in World War one was something yeah. only like a third of soldiers actually fired their weapons at the enemy intentionally yeah. right, right. And what did the army do? Like we changed it from round targets to human shaped silhouettes. Yeah. Right. And when you go to the range, you're not shooting targets. You're shooting Ivans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You think yeah. about all the cadences you sing when you're training that yeah. <laughs> sure as hell can't repeat here. Right? right. But all of those go into part of the conditioning to break down that natural aversion and make it easier. Right. But that still has a cost. I mean, I have my old one of my old first sergeants, man, I, I love and respect, you know, um, you know, once told me he's like, you know, hey, I, I truly believe that I will have to answer for every life I took, you know, yeah. justified or not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I know a lot of soldiers who feel that way, that yeah. it, it does something to you. And the the aversion we have to talking about it, the barriers we have to talking about it, the walls that we kind of put up. So we can just kind of function with that 
but we don't create the space and the ways to kind of talk those feelings out and work those feelings out, all of those compound, you know, into those, um, those moral injuries yeah. that Grossman talks about. Well, and that's funny because that was actually Grossman's forward. I think he said, he said, go to the library, go to a bookstore, look how many books you can find on having sex or how many books you can find on uh, how to cope with divorce or how many books to find with coping with grief. He said, but how many books are there to tell you how to deal with killing? Yeah. And the after effects of that and and that it, it is its own study and it is um, an in-depth study. Sorry, I'm going to cut you yeah, off. No, no worries. Yeah. I was just going to say one, one thing. I, I did. I, I met uh, Gro, uh, Dave Grossman in a in a uh, in a in a seminar. He did. He puts on, you know, for law enforcement and military everywhere. Mm-hmm, sure. So he he just happened to come to my neck of the woods. And it was an amazing, amazing conversation I had with him. And uh, and one thing is, you know, when I came home in 06, you know, not knowing about uh, Dave Grossman's book many years later, I actually read it and I was like, my God, if I only had this, you know, yeah. when I first came home, I would understand exactly what's going on with me, my soldiers, what, what, you know, what goes on in the human mind, because the army never taught you any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, the army never really went into the whys. You know, and 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 like you said, the conditioning, the battle drills, the cadences, the everything goes into being that warfighter. And as much as sometimes civilians are like, oh my God, the military war and all that. Yeah, but you know what? We have a function. There's a function, there's a reason why we train a certain way to be able to get over that hump and be able to execute these uh these missions uh with with you know, uh, with the extremes that we go into to, to get the job done. And, and, but again, it goes back to everything that we're, we've been talking about is mentally being able to have that rest time after, you know, and being able to process everything. And I think I, I've told this story before. I've told you, Chris, uh, before about, you know, that SWAT hit where I nearly, you know, contact mm-hmm. shot, killed a guy. Uh, and two days later I had a legitimate panic attack and I was like, it was because, I've, I forgot to uh, work on that, those things where, because, you know, when you go through therapy, you learn, you learn, all right, this is what happens to me right before a panic attack, two days before a panic attack. All right. Then you work on it, Mm -hmm. you do it. And then you get over that hump. Good to go. Versus, you know, I was doing SWAT mission after SWAT mission after SWAT mission. It was a very, very busy time. And I did not allow myself. I put up those walls, not allowing really to the moment of reflection of being like, all right, doing the AR, doing the internal AR in your head and being like, all right, how do I feel? Let's see. All right. How do I feel today? What is this? What is that? Where two days later, I had a full blown panic attack driving on my way to training. And I was like, holy shit. And, and, and it goes to show how important it is to have, to be able to recognize those, uh, those quote unquote triggers, um, as, as you go out through your day, because if you're unable to recognize them, that's when soldiers get in trouble. That's when cops get in trouble. Yep. That's when, you know, a lot of these, uh, these high stress jobs, uh, that's why we get in trouble, uh, because mm-hmm. we, we ignore those, those signs that we need to, uh, take the time to rest and our leaders, it's incumbent on leadership to recognize also before a cop is in a bad way or a soldier's in a bad way or, or whatever, uh, it's incumbent on leadership to also step in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, every time you pull the trigger on your weapon, there is a chance, not probable, but there is a chance that the weapon will just blow up in your face. Mm-hmm. Every time you pull, every time you pull the trigger and manufacturers run those failure tests so they can say, Hey, this will occur at 5 million rounds fired or 10 million rounds fired or 15 million rounds fired. Right. 
But when you have a perfectly brand new functioning weapon up to date on this maintenance, I mean, the probability is so infinitesimally low that it might not even exist. But if you just fire that weapon every single day, day in, day out, and you don't do any maintenance on it, now it's ticking up and it's sitting higher and it's getting higher. Now, instead of a one out of 10 million chance, it's a one out of a million. So the one out of a million is one out of 500,000. Now it's one out of 50,000, right? And okay, one out of 50,000 really ain't that great. But, oh, hey, now we're at one of 10,000. Yes. Are you willing to do something 10,000 repetitions for that one to blow up in your face, right? And again, what we're seeing is, and then when it happens, it's, my God. Yeah. We had no idea. Yeah. Why, why did this How happen? Did we, <laughs> why did this happen? Why did we get to the point? Right? Yeah. It's funny because, you know, in the Army, whenever there is a safety accident, um, you do an Army ground accident report, right? So any kind of vehicular accident. One of the first things that's pulled in the Army ground accident report and is included in the investigation are the maintenance files. As soon as there is a vehicle accident, like, for example, we had a few um, we had a few vehicle fires in my last unit. Um, first thing that one of the first things the investigator says, go find the maintenance tech and I want the service packet for the vehicle. When was the pack pulled? When was the last flush done? When was the oil change? When was the last service packet installed, right? Because the Army realizes when something bad happens to a vehicle, there's usually a direct correlation to somebody not doing the maintenance they're supposed to, right? So it's funny that we recognize that in your equipment, right? You know, Eamon, I'm sure if you guys had a a weapon misfire on the range, first thing you're probably going to do is you're going to inspect the weapon yourself. Then you're going to go see the armor. Hey, bro, when... Who did who did maintenance on this weapon last? Yeah. You're gonna ask your guy, when's the last time you cleaned it? When's the last time you disassembled it? Yeah. Right? You're probably gonna pull it apart yourself and inspect it and take a look at it. Yep. Right. Yep. And I bet that you will have the ass if you open that weapon up and you see things that were obviously damaged or corroded. No, trust me, I lose my I lose my mind every time one of the officers has a dirty weapon that hasn't cleaned in a year, and I'm yeah. like, "Are you se- like, are you yeah. fucking serious?" Yeah, like, this- because you know there's a direct correlation between yeah. the care you put in your weapon and its performance on the battlefield. Yeah, yeah. it's the same thing with people. There's a direct yeah. correlation between the maintenance we conduct on ourselves, yeah, and our ultimate performance when it counts. Because if we don't do it, that one in ten thousand isn't going to hit. When we're sitting on the couch in a low risk environment, right? We always, if something bad can happen, it will happen and it will always happen at the worst possible time. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, again, we need to take the same care of ourselves that we do with our equipment. We need to invest the same time in our vehicles as we do with our own mental health, right? We need to do the same repetitions of managing our stress, of recognizing the signs that we're about to pop as we do running iterations on the range, right? You can't just do it once, right? And how many rounds do you think that you fire in a year in training as a squad officer? Uh, I'd say average 5,000 rounds probably. 5,000 rounds, right? 5,000 rounds a year. Would you say that's to get better or to maintain where you are? Oh, that's always to get better. Always to excel. Right? So 5,000 rounds to get you a little bit better than you were before. Yeah. Right? So, but you're sure as shit not going out to the range 
popping off one around and being like, all right, guys, yeah, training's complete for the year. It never works that way. Yeah, exactly. But we do that with our mental health. Yeah, sure. I talked to the chapel once. I'm good. I went to a therapist once. I'm good. I called the veterans classes line once. I'm good. I talked to my buddy late one night. I'm good. Doesn't work like that. You know, like you, like Chris, you mentioned earlier, what's the line between repression and discipline? You know, discipline comes when you are committed to doing the work. That's where the discipline aspect is. We have to be disciplined in we're going to be honest with ourselves. We're going to do an honest self-assessment, just like we would assess our unit for its training proficiency. We're going to assess ourselves on our on our on our mental health, just like we'd be disciplined in following the training plans for enter and clear a room. We need to be disciplined in the approach we need to take for our mental health. The discipline is it's 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 no different. It's just yeah. applied in a different aspect of our lives. If we're yeah. disciplined with our equipment, if we're disciplined yeah. with our training. We need to be disciplined with our own mental health. Yeah. Taryn, I want to read uh, part of your book back to you, and then I got a question for you about it. Uh, it, was, it was one that was written so simply um, that I couldn't believe nobody had ever articulated it as well as you did. So the quote is, you never really know how much a situation has affected you until you're no longer neck deep in it, until you're no longer looking over your shoulder, until your mind finally registers, hey, relax, no one's trying to kill you. You get a massive outpouring of tension, followed by relief, and then followed by guilt. Finally, the strangest thing of all, you start to miss it. You find you feel more awkward back in this alternate reality than in your quote-unquote normal world, and you wonder what that means. You find things start to itch just under the surface. You miss the rumble of gunpowder and cordite and the throb of the pack. You find it all seems a little out of place back here. What kept you um, so fixated in life and death professions personally? I guess this is always what I felt what I was meant to do. And I can't remember. I heard this very, very early on, but it was someone was describing a soldier. And what they said was, you know, a soldier is someone who protects those who can't protect themselves. Uh, my dad's also, uh, my dad's retired law enforcement, did 33 years, um, vice, narcotics, gangs, undercover, um, you know, was finished his career out as a, as a detective for, for juvenile crimes. And that's what it always was to me about, about, about being a soldier. It was, it was being part of something bigger than myself and, you know, it, there are bad people and bad things in this world and someone has to do something about it. Right. And if I have the ability to do that and I have a calling to do that, then that's, that's, that's what I need to do. And it's, you know, I've never quite been able to really put a finger on it with my, with my civilian friends about how you can both completely hate combat and miss it at the same time. Um, I think the closest I can get to is, is boxing, right? Boxing is not a team sport. It is you and one other dude, and no one is coming to help you. And you're going to win or you're going to lose. Right. And I think there's a little bit of that simplicity in combat at the end of the day, there's a, 
an indescribable feeling of knowing that you were in the ultimate test yep. and you won. Um, it's, it's, it's weird. That, that's right? what I always and, say. It's like you, you, when you're battle tested, it's like you're battle tested, you know, you, you, you pass that. It's, it's, it's almost like a, a rite of passage, I guess I'll call it, mm-hmm. especially for combat soldiers. Sorry to mm-hmm. cut you off, Darren. I just no, yeah, need to get that. It, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's I, I made it through this and I won and I could do it. And the weird paradoxical mix of emotions, you know, the rush, the excitement, the adrenaline, the realization of, did I really just feel that? What's wrong? How did I enjoy this? What's wrong with me? The, the sense of shared accomplishment with your soldiers around you, all those kind of things. It's, it's, it's confusing. It's exciting. It's intoxicating. It doesn't really translate well. Um, if you hasn't, if you haven't done it, you know, some people look at it as being an adrenaline junkie. Well, it's, it's, it's not that, you know, it's not that at all. I have a, I have a car that I drive way too fast for an, <laughs> for an adrenaline rush a few times. Right. You know, I've done other kind of, you know, kind of cool, exciting things. Jumped out of an airplane. That was an adrenaline rush. None of the adrenaline rushes I've had in the civilian world came close to the sensation and the feelings, you know, after, you know, we cornered, engaged and destroyed an RPG team. Right. Or, you know, when an EFP, you know, gutted my very first tank in combat and I walked away with nothing more than a rung bell and a jammed shoulder. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's indescribable. Um, the things you see, the things you experience, those feelings. And, you know, I don't know if it's, and I guess this is the, this is the hard thing is do I think that I miss combat itself? Hell no, absolutely not. If no one ever shoots at me again for the rest of my natural life, I will die a happy man. Um, but I think the thing you miss is that, that, that sensation and that feeling of, you know, overcoming that op that, that ultimate test really kind of overcoming that, that obstacle. And I think that's some, even, you know, even now, like I, it's, it's just, it's, it's hard to put into words and, and hard to describe. So to use your boxing analogy for you personally, when does, when's the 12th round over? When does the match end? When does that, that mental trait shut off? Hmm. You know, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if it ever does. I think that's one of the things that we struggle with. I don't think that it's an either or, right? Um, I think it just becomes a part of you, just like your eye color, your hair color, your food preference. And I think that's when you can really kind of, that's when I noticed that I healed, right? It took me about five years to really kind of get past my trauma. And it was while writing this book where I realized, hey, this is just a part of me now right? It isn't, it isn't good. It isn't bad. It just is. And then further is because it is a part of me, I can choose what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Right. I can choose to use this experience to try to help other people, you know, and that's what I chose to do. Um, and I think that's, 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 I don't know if there's a, if there's as much of an end as there is a reconciliation. 
Yeah, I, I have to agree. I mean, there, there, I, I don't see it as an uh, end on, on my part also. Um, I see it. I've always said that going to war woke something up in me. You know, uh, something woke up, I, whether, whether you want to call it a wolf, demon, freaking lion, whatever. Something woke up in me when I after I got home. And I realized that at home because you don't really realize it at combat because of combat, everything's intense, aggressive, all that stuff. You, I realized it after, you know, when, when I came home. And, and that's the thing where I'll always say a part of me will always be at that war. And I've learned but, to accept but also- it. But also, I mean, you you got combat blue balls, uh, for lack of a better word, right? Because <laughs> the, the military forced you to lose your heart on with that. And Pretty which, much, which yeah. Sucks also. So you got yeah, cut yeah. Off I mean, throat. I mean, the military yeah. did did kick. They're like, yeah, you you're all done. We're all set with you. But uh, but the thing is, though, you know, the the reason why I transitioned to law enforcement, as as most of you know, fellow combat vets that did that, is because of that that not rush for combat or anything like that. But it, it's that keeping that thing in us that developed in us, keep it going, keep it alive, because that's where we felt the most alive we've ever felt, you know, when, when we're dealing with these uh, situations and and these traumas and all that stuff is putting us because we know what we're capable of. We were battle tested. We know how we will react, you know, to different uh, scenarios, different situations. We can keep a level head. And, you know, uh, it's funny you mentioned that because my, the last job I had, we were doing a command post exercise and we were sitting out in the talk and, you know, here I am a, a major in the unit. And I'm sitting there and I'm responding to an email on my Blackberry. And I just kind of like, I just give like this, the heavy sigh. Right. And you know, the battle captains, the lieutenant goes, sir, what's wrong? And I said, man, I used to chase dudes through the street of Baghdad at night, body armor, hopping over fences, fighting dudes, arresting folks, getting into car chases. And now my most casually producing weapon system is my cell phone. <laughs> and he just kind of looked, looked at me like I was crazy. And then one of the old NCOs behind him was like, yeah, put that in my soul, sir. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I remember one of my, one of my favorite memories you know, was a tank platoon leader. I we literally got into a car chase between a tanker truck, one of those giant fuel tanker trucks, and I was in a tank. And here I am, bombing up route Pluto's doing 35 miles an hour and 72 tons of all American murder, and literally slaloming through traffic in a tank. Right? One hand on the 50 cal, one hand key in the mic. And I'm just sitting here like I will never be as badass in my life as I am. <laughs> fast forward, fast forward 13 years, and here I am answering emails about why the ammo drop was late. Right. And you can yeah. just literally just feel your soul die a little bit. Yeah. Right. And yeah, I mean, it's we got to do some cool things. We got to do some unique things. We got to do some once in a lifetime things. And it was, you know, at the same time, feeling, feeling like you were part of something bigger than yourself. You yeah. know, the guys, as, as corny as it sounds, is the guys to the left and right of you, right? Yeah. Those, those shared experiences that, that just bond you. And like you said, I mean, it's like guys get out and it's, it's what, what is it that we, what is it that we really, really miss? What draws guys back to things like law enforcement and other service jobs? I think a lot of it is 
I want to be part of something bigger than myself, you know? And when I retire, I told my wife, I was like, you know, when I retire, don't think I'm going to go, you know, get some corporate job and, and, and be rich. I will probably be a, a, you know, lowly paid government employee my entire life because the, the thought of waking up and going to work just to make some rich dude even richer that it doesn't why yeah what's the greater good in that but so, you know yeah that that's me like you know i'm getting close to that time in in my career as as law enforcement and and you know i did a really introspective i'm like all right what do i really want to do when i'm done and the realization is i want to take the knowledge that i've gathered for all these decades and give it to the younger cop, give it to the younger soldier, give it to mm-hmm. whomever, where, where I'm going to be more on the training side of things. I'm not going to be mm-hmm. the one kicking in the door, but you know what? I want to keep myself within that community and teach guys and gals, these things, teach firearms, teach entries, mm-hmm. teach CQB where I can, you know, having that knowledge in the back of my brain, if I was to retire, like you said, go to a corporate job, well, I have all this knowledge in my head. I'm not going to, it's not going to benefit anybody. Yeah. You know, versus benefit. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Unless I get, and that's what I see a lot in the retired military, retired SF, retired SWAT, retired, all of them, though, the, the way they found they're out, they're out there, their, their need to stay within the community is training. Mm-hmm. You know, is because now they still feel they are a part of something more than themselves, you know, yeah. versus doing it for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Taryn, do you feel like you're still like there's still boxes that you have to tick for yourself personally? There's still something you need to prove. There's still some sense of, yeah, you know, I, I got to scratch that itch still. Uh, honestly, I would say the last box that I feel like I really need to tick is being a good husband and a good father. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I've done yeah. a lot of cool things in my life. Um, I've had a lot of professional successes. Um, and some of that has come at a cost and come at a, a strain on the family. So the most important mission I have now um, is to be a good husband and a good father. Right. Everything else I'm kind of doing from here on out kind of goes back to how will it impact yeah. that mission in that role. How much, uh, how much do you wish you could have changed? Um, I know granularly, of course, there's, you know, it would have been great to have, you know, done a lot more in a tactical sense, but generally when you look over how your life has unfolded and the battles you fought, um, administratively, psychologically, you know, all those things, would you change any of it? Or do you think like, Hey, this has been a worthwhile mission, a worthwhile purpose that's gotten you to this point. So I've always kind of, I've always truly believed that we're the sum of our experiences. And if you change one thing, you change of, you change who you are. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from folks on the book. I've had people reach out and say that, Hey, this has really helped me. Um, And, you know, who knows, maybe there's a soldier somewhere who saw the book, read the book, heard a post, heard somebody talking about it, and that convinced them to go get help, right? Or that pulled them out of crisis, right? And, you know, if this book has helped one person and has, you know, helped pull one person, you know, out of crisis and out of darkness, and yeah, it's been worth it. You know, your struggles, your pain are only, your struggles and pain are only worthless 
if you don't apply the lessons and do something about it. Yeah. Are you still writing? You still write uh, every day? Yeah. Uh, I don't write every day. I've actually had quite a few publications out. Um, this is my only book, but I've written several articles in a lot of the military blogs um, on organizational leadership and things like that. Um, probably one of my biggest successes was an article called How to Fail as a Major, where I kind of relayed the four ways that you can really screw up transitioning to become a field grade officer. And I shared those because I personally screwed every single one of those up. <laughs> and it was only by, you know, the grace of God and some patient bosses and some good mentors that I was able to succeed. So again, you know, our professors are one of those like, hey, let learn from learn from other people's lessons. Um, so again, that's kind of my passion now is I, I want to give back to the profession. And the way that I found to give back to our profession is writing and sharing my experiences and sharing my mistakes uh, so that others can can read and grow about it. So ultimately, I think if I do ever write a second book, it's probably going to be on uh, organizational leadership. Mm, interesting. I, that makes sense because it seems like, I mean, in, in many respects, this this book is a sort of, I don't want to say poetic journey, but it, it, there's a, so much personally that's that's invested in it. But you can't help but start to prescribe and figure out, hey, how do you fix this? How do you make sure some of these things change for the future? Um, I just want to ask, as I know we're getting close to wrapping things up, uh, with everything going on in the world today, you know, at one point in your book, you say, I can't believe I got on the plane to go back to Afghanistan. Would you, I mean, obviously you'd go where you're ordered if they told you to get back on a plane now. What would your emotions be if that call came again, being with everything you've been through at this point? Uh, so, if you know the Russians cross the berm and we're going into a high intensity conflict of tank battles and artillery and losing entire battalions in a day, you had to get on the plane, and I'd be absolutely terrified. Yeah. I don't think I think anybody who says they wouldn't be afraid is absolutely lying. Yeah. No, you can you can you can definitely see the change. And I, when I was a lieutenant, when I was, when I was, it was just me. I was just kind of dating somebody. Then I was just single, going to combat deployment. Yeah, sure, man. If I get hit by a rocket, I guess my parents right. are getting, you know, half a million dollars. Right. When I was in Afghanistan, I remember that very last when my when my squadron commander came down and said, "Hey, I know we're about to go home, but there's this sector where no Americans have been for six months, and we're going to send you guys up there to kind of kick around, see what happens, and put in an AUP checkpoint." The first thing in my head was, "I'm going to fucking die." This is it. This is yeah. when people. This is yeah. when people die in deployments. Because yeah. I remember when I first got to Iraq, I'm like, "Hey, what? Why is old boy just sitting around the sitting around the fob? Oh, he goes on leave in like three weeks. So why would they stop patrolling him now? Don't want him to get killed before he goes home. Like you always die right before. Yeah. It, it sounds it's, so. It sounds so cliche. It, it is so true though. It, it's so true. It's so <laughs> cliche true. for a reason. I had a. Yeah. I had a, I had a so couple true. of classmates and good friends who were killed in similar fashions, and all yeah. I could think of was like that whole mission, like rolling out, is like I'm going to go home. I'm going to marry this woman, and I'm going to get. I'm going to die, or worse, yeah. worse than that, I'll be horribly injured. Yeah. You know, like will she stay? Will she leave me? What's my life going to be like? And I would walk on that plane and I'd wonder the whole time, am I going to widow my, my wife? Are my kids going to have a father, right? Am I going to come back with PTSD like I did the last time? Am I going to be able to, am I going to be able to have the strength to, to get over it again? You know, all those thoughts and fears will be going through my head. 
But at the end of the day, and I learned this from the, the first NCO example I ever had in my life. He was my JROTC uh, instructor in high school, retired uh, sergeant first class at a fifth group. You know, remember him telling me like, courage isn't, courage isn't not being afraid. Courage is being afraid and doing it anyway. Right. 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 And that's, that's what it comes down to because there's things that override your fear. There's your, your sense of duty, your sense of honor, your sense of commitment to the mission and to your unit. Right. There's a lot of things that we use to help overcome that fear, but to sit here and pretend like I wouldn't be afraid, get the fuck out of here. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean you know, I, oh, no, for I, sure. am, yeah, I am not yeah. 22. I am not 22 and I have things to lose now. Yeah. I have responsibilities yeah. outside the service. Yeah. Right. You know, my dad said there is a very similar thought that he had when he, you know, transitioned from from being on the street to, you know, going over to crime prevention and a school resource officer. You know, I mean, you probably heard like had fellow cops. Oh, man, you know, a real cop. If you're not on the street, if you're not out there on patrol, mm-hmm. he's like, I got responsibilities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is better. This is yeah. better for my family. And I am still serving my community. I'm just doing it in a different way. Yeah. So, again, yeah. I'd be terrified. And I think that that's absolutely normal, absolutely natural. And it's not, you know, being terrified isn't the important thing. It's right. it's being terrified and doing it anyway. What do you do with the terror? That's yeah. right. Exactly. Well, that's, that's the thing is, is, you know, uh, whether, whether it was, uh, you know, my time in, in the army in Iraq or now with, with SWAT and all the hundreds of missions that I've done operations that I've done, uh, the feeling never goes away of, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing to me. Like, you know, we'll be in the Bearcat 10 minutes out. We'll be laughing, joking, smoking, whatever, you know, and sure as shit, you know, we hear five minutes. Everyone starts getting quiet. One minute out, game pace on, right? Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing is, yeah, we're all scared, but you know what? It's it's our guy to our left and right that we won't mm-hmm. fail. You know, that's 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 the courage part. You know, when, mm-hmm. when those doors open, we're going out there to, one, yeah, we got a mission to do, but at the same time, we want to make sure every one of us goes home at the yep. end of the mission. Yep. And it is, 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 you know, there's a time when you got to put those feelings and put those fears in a box yep. and you put them in a box, you do the work, take them out the box, do the work, yep. do the work again, yeah. reconcile those feelings. Yeah. All right. You well, know, that's it, right? You, that's the discipline versus repression, right? That's yep. disciplining yourself right at the point of impact. Well, that, that's my yeah. civilian friends. They would always ask me, you know, when, when I was in Iraq, they're like, man, weren't you ever scared of like, you know, hitting IEDs all the time or blah, 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 blah. I was like, you know, yeah, of course. But if I was, if I had a mission and I had to be out there, those aren't going to be the things on the forefront of my mind. That's not what I'm thinking about. I'm yeah, thinking that's about where the training kicks in. Exactly. The- exactly. And that's why I tell them, I said, the training kicks in. The only people, the only thing I'm thinking about is my gun truck, my gunner, my driver, and whoever else is in my immediate gun truck, my squad that we're going out there. I'm not even thinking about the, about the IEDs. Yeah. And then back of my mind, but they're not, they're not stopping me from doing the mission, you know, same thing out on the streets as a cop. Yeah, is there a potential I'm going to get stabbed, shot, whatever? Oh, yeah, but it's not going to stop me. I still have to serve. I still have that sense of duty and honor that that I have to be out there to protect and, and to do my job. But, yeah, it's in the back of my mind. But my mission's first. You know, yeah. I think I think that's one of those things, you know, where I 
always place the mission first where I've also kind of uh, adopted it in a way where, yeah, the mission's always going to be my mission or the mission's going to be for myself as in my mental mm-hmm. health. Right. You know, you always place the mission first and then same thing with my guys. Yeah. Missions. The mission is also my guys, you know, to make sure they come home safe and have the equipment mm-hmm. and necessary training needed to execute the job well done. Mm-hmm. So, Hey, I mean, were you going to read something? Oh yeah. So uh, I one want thing I wanted to, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Uh, one thing I actually that that one thing that really hooked me into the book uh, is the poem that you're you uh, was it you and your guys? I know you said uh, added by guys in my unit written during my time in Baghdad. Was it a collective poem that all of you wrote? I think so. The original poem is you know Fiddler's Green. I think that last ver- honestly, I think it just kind of rose organically. His guys okay. just kind of talking and and bullshit and everything, um, you know just during the deployment uh the last the last final verse about afghanistan i wrote uh while i was deployed there uh but the one about rustamaya yeah that just kind of that just kind of yeah so so like you you write about you know uh, the you you start off fiddles green what i want to read is the last line where yep. you, you guys contribute or where you contribute. And it says, and so when you're on the road and catch an IED or walking around on patrol and a sniper stops you clean, when Haji starts to overrun, just empty your canteen and put your pistol to your head and go Fiddler's Green. And that was added by the guys. And and I think it, it, it really captured me because not only did I read, you know, the, the, the Fiddler's Green and and just that little part, because it reminds me of my guys uh, putting together a poem we called the Praetorian Monologue, you know, our time in Iraq, which it was was just a compilation of stuff we did uh, written in a poem. And it just kind of took me back there where I was thinking, I'm like, man, yeah, that's that's what we do, you know, in terms of writing where, you know, we, we look at it as, as soldiers and, and those who have been time at war. I mean, you know, I got it right away, uh, um, you know, and, and was that towards the end of your deployment or towards the, the middle? Like when, when was this kind of added? Uh, you know, I don't, I couldn't really tell you. Well, so when we got there in October of 06, things were kind of a little, I don't want to say steady things were simmering, but they hadn't exploded. Um, You know, you guys know 2007 was a very, very bad year for Iraq and a very bad year in Baghdad. And it was a combination, I think of, of, you know, once the Iraqi civil war really kind of kicked off um, and escalated rapidly and violently corresponding with the extension. Um, I'll never forget the, we were, I was, <laughs> we had just got back in patrol. We were eating in the defect and it was on TV. The news anchor was like, yeah. And, and yeah. just, just in all active duty units, all active duty army units will now serve 15 months in Iraq. Because up until that point, like the extension boogeyman was kind of out there. Yeah. Like some folks that got extended, yeah. you know, but it was like, will we, won't we, you know, but at that moment, I remember that got announced and two things happened. The chow hall went dead silent which i'd never heard before or since in my life and i remember it was one of my soldiers looked up and goes do you do you think they mean us too (laughs) 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 and so we all like like we look like seriously dude but here's the, the the screwed up thing was for three months that was a legit question Because there were questions about whether first cab was going to get included in that or whether or not it would be Mm. the next units going down. So I remember we were at six months left of deployment for three months 
And because I had taken my, I took my leave at my three month mark, which corresponded with my then girlfriend's six month mark. I came back and I did a year. Oh, I did God. all of 2007. Man. Yeah. Like straight up. Yeah. And, you know, I think you go back to, hey, what's the ideal? What's the ideal length? Well, 12 months straight in an area where yeah. literally you can die or be seriously wounded just lying in your bed no. on the yeah. fob. That, that's what I did. My, my first my first three months, I was I was one of the first ones to take leave. So I spent an entire <laughs> the rest of my deployment in country. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I mean, there is not a day. There is not a day on FOB rest of my in 2007 where folks were somebody from the FOB wasn't wasn't coming in in pieces. Yeah. I mean, I remember yeah. at one point it used to be that if there's a casualty on the FOB, they black out. They do a combo blackout for the whole FOB. So, yeah. Op Sergeant Major go to the MWR trailer, pull the plug out the internet, lock up the phone trailer, and once notifications were done, okay, we'll open it back up to everything. It got so bad on Rusty that I think it would. There was a, a rolling combo blackout for almost like three and a half weeks. Wow! Because people from different units, just one after another yeah. after another, and it got so bad that the sergeant majors kind of got together. It's like, okay, look, we we can't keep shutting down the whole fob because at that point there was like, I think three or four battalions on Rusty, um, and wow. it got to the point where it's like, okay, we'll just block out the battalion. Okay, now we're just gonna have to black out individual companies. Yeah. Like it was, it the the level of of death and violence that that fob saw and experienced was absolutely unreal. Yeah. Um, and I think that was uh, <laughs> it, it. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. It was rough. So I think that was kind of added in response because remember, it wasn't like we were experiencing that level of violence and getting to hit back equally. Right. Yeah. It was a lot of yeah. you're getting ambushed, yeah. you're getting blown yeah. up. You know, our company had a lot of great tactical successes, but it always still kind of felt like we were taking it more than we were giving it. Yeah. Um, a lot of time. And I think that was kind of in response, um, in response to those frustrations. I mean, God, we had one guy in our company, I think he was in 14 IED strikes, <sighs> came out with all of his limbs and everything intact, but he he suffered from you know some pretty severe TBI. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and again, like that level of constant exposure to of constant exposure to violence, those constant feelings of helplessness, the constant tension of waiting for it to happen. You know, when you when you don't even have to be outside the wire for it yeah. to happen, you yeah. know, when you're getting hit by like 30 something rockets at a time, you know, <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I think that that's that's where a lot of that that's where a lot of that verse came from. Just kind of it just naturally evolved, um, naturally evolved from those. I, I, I just loved it. Yeah, that, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, thanks for reminding me, Chris, because I did want to ask uh, specifically on on that verse because it, it it really hit home and kind of lo- hooked me right into the book right away. Well, also, I mean that yeah, all that yeah, the 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 changes in the ROE and how that affected and the, and capturing the rage that develops from that. I think a lot of people forget that and a lot yeah, of people yeah. need to hear about that again because that yeah. wasn't true in every theater but especially then and especially in iraq that was and, such a big issue yeah and and in baghdad i mean i i tell people like when i started the deployment it was like we want to go in that house kick the door open go in toss That's and search everything what, and leave that was, that was 05 that was yeah. we just did what we needed and then, to do and then by the time you're leaving in 07 it's oh my god Ameri- yeah. americans 
can, can we come in and search for AKs and IEDs? Uh, wow. We have the Iraqi police here with us who already called and warned you to move the cash. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and that was kind of the frustrations yeah. that we have. And when you look at it now, when you look at it in hindsight, and when you, you study history and you look at counterinsurgency doctrine and things like that, you can't kill your way out of an insurgency. Yeah. Well, correction. You can kill your way out of an insurgency, but the moral cost of doing that is so insanely high that it doesn't necessarily work in the long term, right? The French tried it in Algeria. Yeah. Didn't really work. Um, the, the, when you look at quote unquote successful um, American in counterinsurgency operations, people go back to, you know, well, look what we did in the Philippine War. But yeah. A lot of the things and methods that we use in the Philippine, the Philippine insurrection are kind of considered war crimes today. Right. So (laughs) not a good example of history to draw from. And and there's a price to pay for being the good guy. Like you have to have left and right limits that that if you are an insurgency, you don't have to abide by. And if you're going to try to have a moral high ground, um, it's that's a tough hand to play. I wanted to actually I'm sorry, I'm I'm, I'm, Darren, you've been great with your time. I don't want to take advantage. No, you're you're okay. But I, I did want to read your your section on insurgency because I thought you captured this. I say like what, what there's so many aspects of your book that I like, but one of them is the fact that you veer between thirty thousand foot view geopolitical statements into intimate personal feelings, and it goes back and forth, and and you touch on so many different things that I think are fascinating. But I want to read what you read, what you wrote about insurgency. You said insurgency, while political, acts like an infection, like a virus. It infests, infects, and multiplies until it chokes off the rest of the healthy system. The violence is the symptom. However, few insurgencies remain true to their political roots because power has a way of corrupting human beings. And you go on from there to explain exactly why insurgency itself as a TTP uh, is so so tricky and and i think that captures the difficulties of coin better than any paragraph i'd ever read it was is really incredible yeah. piece of writing yeah and one more thing i wanted to mention uh because i don't think this gets enough uh enough attention so there is a a young woman referenced throughout the book the girl i was saying at the time sarah and this is something that doesn't get talked about a lot you know i don't know how many movies tv shows and country songs are written about the guy who comes home from deployment and he has problems and his woman just ups and leaves him because he doesn't have the strength to handle it right um i would like to say here and now unequivocally that those songs and those sentiments a lot of them are full of shit and i'll say this way are there are there a lot of times that I saw absolutely heartbreaking things where guys came home and, you know, guys and women came home and their spouses were cheating and run around with Jody and things like that. Yeah. But it's a different thing to have a person you love and a cornerstone of your life come back as a completely different human being and not recognize, and they don't recognize their problems and they are not getting help. And you have to literally watch them deteriorate every single day. And we don't do enough to acknowledge the level of trauma and emotional suffering and emotional hardship that our spouses and partners and significant others go through while we are also struggling with our PTSD. 
right? Well, we're also struggling with our issues. And I was angry at her for a long, long time of my life. And then I finally realized, you know what? I would have left me too. Because honestly, I was a man sinking. I was a man drowning. And most importantly of that, I was a man who did not think that he needed help and didn't want to get it. Yeah. So then how long then do you stay and expose yourself to that trauma and become traumatized yourself? Right. And so I think it's important that there's a lot of wonderful spouses who have stuck out and wonderful spouses who have stayed. And there's a lot of equally wonderful spouses who made the decision that, hey, I can't continue to suffer this trauma. And then when you add kids into the mix, it's even harder. Yeah. Right. So again, it's, 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 it's not as clean as a country song. Yeah. You know, it's not as black and white. It's not as simple. And I think that we would do a a disservice if we didn't acknowledge that, Hey, when we are struggling with PTSD and depression and suicide, there are people in our lives who love us and care about us, who, who are struggling as we struggle. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, as I say, like, I I think your book is a 360 degree treatment of so many issues Uh, or or that's rather the case. It's 360 degrees of issues that you, that you touch on in the book. And I think that's something that often gets overlooked that people will focus on the political, but they miss the personal or they'll focus on the memoir, but they don't look at the prescriptive uh, changes, systemic changes that could happen. Um, you seem to hit on all of it and eloquently. And uh, I, the fact that you're telling me 95% of that was written verbatim overseas, uh, I'm incredibly jealous of your ability to compartmentalize and actually do that in that mindset, in that mind frame, and at that point in time. But man, you, it was a pleasure to read. And um, yeah, I, uh, I, I'll talk to you offline because I'd like to actually feature some of your writing in, in another forum um, if you're okay with it. But uh, yeah, it's a great Definitely. piece of work, man. It's a great piece of work. Yeah. And uh, also on, on ours, like just appreciate the time uh, that you took out of mm-hmm. your day uh, to uh, talk about this because these, mm-hmm. these are, I mean, some real, real, real issues uh, that, that need to be discussed and yeah. always be at the forefront of, uh, of soldiers, of law enforcement, of, of, mm-hmm. of, all these types of high-risk uh, businesses that that get into. Oh, thank you, thank you. And you know, don't just thank me. Thank my uh, my four-year-old, my seven-year-old. Looks like they succeeded in their task, and I'm going to have to shell out with Mission Taco for lunch tomorrow. <laughs> so I, I think we're we're watching the Winter Olympic opening ceremonies tonight, and we are painting unicorns. So. You know, <laughs> going back to the, hey, my, my main role now is, yeah. you know, my most important mission now is being a good husband and a good dad. So daddy's going to go paint some unicorns. All right, bet you. You we'll, we'll let you get back you to your mission. Man. <laughs> let you get back to the mission. That's right. Taryn, thanks, man. And um, when you are out of uniform, not like you held back or didn't speak freely now, but when you're out of uniform and moved on to whatever your second career is, uh, I'd, I'd certainly love to talk to you again. And uh if there's anything you did have to hold back on, I'd love to hear what else you got cooking. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> All right. All right. My Appreciate, man. Appreciate it, Darren. And uh, great talking to you guys. Hey, thanks, guys. Take care. All right. Take All right. care. That was Taryn Wharton's profile in Havoc. 
one hell of an episode, and I'm thrilled you guys could hear from Taryn himself. But I promise you, even if you love that episode, that doesn't even begin to hint at how awesome the book is. Go get the book, High Risk Soldier, available everywhere, especially Amazon, um, including Kindle, so you can have it instantly. Um, I highly recommend it. Just a phenomenal uh piece of military and wartime literature so a little bit of housekeeping this episode of course was brought to you by second mission foundation as well as the veterans repertory theater which full disclosure is my nonprofit. the veterans repertory theater exists to produce veteran playwrights and to celebrate veterans in the arts it is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. It also produces the Savage Wonder podcast and the Savage Wonder literary blog, as well as the Write Loud events on Instagram Live, the first one coming up on February 14th, Valentine's Day, and it will be a Valentine's-themed show. So check that out. Anything that is going on with Veterans Repertory Theater, you can always find out about at vetrep. Org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P dot org. Vetrep dot org. We have a lot of lines of effort going on over there. Go to vetrep dot org and you'll see everything that we have going on and not miss any of it. Um, if you are listening to us on iTunes today, we thank you. And if you could leave a five-star review, we thank you even more. Say whatever you want to us when you leave the review, if you would like. Uh, we'd love to get feedback, uh, constructive criticism, deconstructive criticism. We will take it all. But if you can attach it to five stars, that would just be dynamite. Um, I will have an article out about this episode in Havoc Journal. Uh, I may have some alibis if there's anything I misstated, misremembered, misspoke, um, or Taryn or Iman, but generally it'll just be me uh, writing alibis if there are any. Um, there will also be show notes. So wherever you're listening to this episode, scroll up, scroll down, check out the show notes. You will see the links to buy high risk soldier. And again, I couldn't recommend it more highly as always. Thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Taryn Wharton and I'm in And we'll see you next time for another profile in havoc. <laughs>